Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, friends. Uh, it is good to see you, and uh, I'm grateful to be with you this morning. Before I officially begin, I do want to echo two things Tyler talked about. Uh, one is that last piece about the student trip scholarships. I just want to say that I could not be more grateful for the churches I grew up in for precisely this. I wouldn't be who I am at all today if it weren't for trips, CIYs, camps, those sorts of things. And I wouldn't have been able to go to many of those if it weren't for the help of folks in the church. So I just add my voice to his in saying, man, if that's something that you at all are capable of doing, it is a worthwhile investment in the kingdom present and future. I also want to echo his invitation of our men to the men's conference coming up this weekend. Uh, I love all of our men's and women's events. Uh, I myself have personally never attended the women's events, but I hear they're great. And I have a high degree of confidence in those. And I've experienced the men's conference and other events. And I want to, again, young men, old men, in between men, I don't even care. I just want to invite and challenge you to come. Uh, The research, you may have seen or heard these things. The research is confirming what the scriptures imply that the spiritual well-being of our homes and our communities can often be traced back to the spiritual condition of our men. And I'm not saying anything I'm not saying. Uh, It takes a team to build a home, takes a team to build a community, and few things are more powerful than godly women. But I do think that as men, we have a unique responsibility that God has laid on us to step into the roles that God has made available and to become the men we need to be. So come, we're going to have a great time, and we're going to do important work. All right, commercial over. Let's uh, let's draw our attention to what we're doing here together, talking about the gospel of Mark. Uh, If we have not met, my name is Michael, and I have the pleasure of serving here as part of the church. And uh, my, my family and I have attended here, worshiped here for over a decade and we're so grateful for what this church has meant to us and and the work that we all get to do together for the kingdom in our community and around the world. We are studying the Gospel of Mark. We're in a series on the Gospel of Mark. So if you don't, I think most of you do have your Bibles open. If you don't have your Bibles open to Mark 8, I would encourage you to to do that. Or if you've got the Bible on an app, tune in to Mark chapter 8 because we're going to camp out in the middle portion, uh, the kind of second half of that chapter all morning long. And we're in this series where we've been looking at Jesus the One. And we've been trying to listen to and look closely at Jesus through these different lenses, these different frames. Last week, Elijah talked to us about Jesus, the Holy One, and talked about Jesus' call to holiness uh, on the inside of our lives. Before that, Mark talked about, uh, I mean, we've had some of of my favorite texts in the Gospels. Uh, Mark preached on Jesus, the miraculous one. And he told this great story of Jesus feeding over 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Such a cool story. Uh, Earlier, Drake talked about Jesus, the powerful one, and he preached on another great story story of Jesus and his disciples in this boat on the storm. And then Jesus calms the storm and it absolutely freaks out the disciples because they're trying to figure out who this is. And earlier in the series, in, in early January, Mark preached on Jesus, the healing one. Another story from chapter two, where there's a man whose body doesn't work. And so he's paralyzed and his friends cut a hole in the roof of a full home and they drop this man down so that Jesus can heal him. Such great stories about Jesus. And today we're following up all of that by talking about Jesus, the promised one. Uh, Promise. Everybody say promise. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, Jesus, the promised one. Jesus, the one God promised to send to save us and to help us. The idea that Jesus is the one that we're hoping for and looking for, even if we didn't know that we were looking and hoping for something. Uh, How many of you in the room have made a promise? Thank you. Yeah, that's actually a test to see what kind of participation I can expect. I'm going to say not terrible, um, but pretty sure you've all made a promise. Uh, Anyway, uh, so yeah, we've made promises. How many of you would say that it's important to you to keep your promises? It's like a high personal value that you've placed on your life. Good. How many of you have been on the other end of a promise? Somebody's made a promise to you. Here's a, here's a trickier question. How many of you have had somebody break a promise? 
that most of the hands are still up. It's a very painful experience. Promises are a part of real relationships. Uh, I am a dad and a teacher. Uh, and if there's one thing I've learned about children and students, it's that they never forget a promise. Amen? They forget a lot of things we say, but they do not forget the promises. That is for sure. And sometimes they can even hear you make promises you haven't made. Is this, y'all feel me on this a little bit? So like child says to parent, I don't know, like Thursday afternoon, hey, can we get ice cream this weekend? Parent says, uh, yeah, probably. I think we can probably make that work. Yeah, maybe. We'll see what we can do. Child wakes parent up first thing on Saturday morning and says, do you remember at 3 p.m. on Thursday when you made me a promise on pain of death that we would begin our weekend with ice cream <laughs> and we would continue eating ice cream until I say we are done? You promised. You're like, I don't know if that's quite what I said. Anyway, promise, that's what we're looking at. Um, I don't want to do anything different than what we normally do when we gather together, but I do want to be really intentional about what we're doing more than anything this morning, I want us to take our time and to really um, experience the Jesus of our text as a real, actual person. To experience the living Jesus through the text, to really soak ourselves in the words and the images and the events of the passage that we're studying, not just so we can have some sense of what happened a long time ago, but so that we can be prepared for what's happening. Matter of fact, so that we can lean into what is happening right now. I believe, I really do, I believe that when we gather like this under the word and when we open up the Bible and read it and talk about what it means for us, I actually believe that Jesus is personally addressing us in these moments, that he's here in the room communicating with us. Do you believe that too? Like, I don't know why you come to church. I don't think I'd come to church if I didn't believe that, that Jesus does something. And so I want to make, make room for that. Um, and I do here in a bit want to read the text again, at least, at least once, because the last thing I want to do is over explain things or get into a hurry and miss, move too quickly through this, this story and miss what it's designed to do, which is to slow us down and to get us to think about who we say Jesus is, who we say he is. And what that means when we mean it. Um, but before we do look into this text much further, I do want to acknowledge, maybe confess, I don't know, a problem that I have with this story. And it's, it's not like a problem with the story. I admit that it's a, it's a problem for me. It's not the stories, but, and it's not that I don't like the story. I love this conversation between Jesus and his disciples about who they think he is and what that means for their lives. My problem is I don't always know what it means or what it looks like to take Jesus seriously in this case. I don't always know, like, what am I supposed to do? Like, I want to, but I find it challenging. And, well, let me, let me back up for a minute. What I want to do this morning is, is to really guide us along a kind of a meditation, a reflection on this event. But I don't want you to feel like we're meandering aimlessly. So let me drop a few anchors, and then we can kind of circle around these things. Uh, if, if, if we could kind of distill what I think we need to hear from this text, I would say, uh, you cannot have the Christ without the cross. I, I think that's what Mark is saying. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Everybody say cross. Yeah, you can't. It's always this group right here. So uh, once again, thank you for holding down the fort for the rest of the room. Maybe my left ear just doesn't work and you guys are doing great. I don't know. You cannot have the Christ without the cross. Um, let's put it to ourselves in the form of an uncomfortable question. Uh, what do you do when you don't want to do what Jesus wants you to do? I think maybe that's the crux of the issue. And I, I want to preach this whole text. I want to listen together to this whole text. But I'd like to focus us in on what I think is kind of a, kind of a critical statement that I want to draw out and, and make sure that we're tending to. It comes, 
kind of at the beginning of the last section in verse 34, when it says that Jesus drew the crowds together along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That's the call I want to lean into. That's the statement I want to explore. And it's a, it's a powerful statement, but it's kind of a tricky statement. It's a powerful statement if you know how to take it seriously. And I want to, but there's the rub. Again, that's the thing I'm not entirely sure about. And I know, I don't know, maybe this sounds sort of elementary. It's like, if you don't know how to take Jesus seriously, if you're not going to take Jesus seriously, then you shouldn't call yourself a Christian, right? Right. That's my point. (laughs) I do call myself a a Christian, a follower of Jesus. I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to be telling the truth when, when I say this. And that's something that's easier said than done. I don't really think it's just a me problem. I don't. I don't know if you feel this at all, or if you share this But I think about conversations I've had through the years with people who, like me, claim to be Christians, followers of Jesus. I think about a conversation I had with a friend of mine years, it's probably 20 years ago. Nobody in the room, nobody even lives in this state. It was early in my ministry, and a friend of mine reached out to me because he was distressed, and so we got together. I'm like, what's going on, man? Like, what's bothering you? And he said, man, I just don't want to be married to her anymore. He was talking about his wife. I just don't, I don't, I just don't want to be in this. I'm like, wow, like, what, what is happening? Why? so she lied to me again. And he tells me the story. And I'm like, man, I get it. Like, I, I would be angry too. I think it's appropriate to be angry. I think your anger makes sense and it is justified. But, but like, what did, you, I, I, what did you say? I said, I don't want to be married to her. And I'm like, okay, but you remember that you made a vow before God, right? Yeah, I know. I know. And I said, well, and you, you haven't forgotten that Jesus is, is like against divorce, right? Yeah, yeah, but, well, but what? But what do you want me to do? And it's like, I want you to take up your cross, man. It's not me saying it, it's him. And I don't think you can have Christ without the cross. Maybe a little bit less dramatically. I remember growing up in church and like watching the men in church. Some of y'all know some of my story that during my early years, I grew up without a father in the home. And so I was always kind of intrigued by the idea of a grown man who follows Jesus. And I'm a young guy in church. And I remember even as a young guy thinking like, what is it like to be you, you know? And I always wanted to go up to these guys in the church. What is it like to be a grown man who follows Jesus? What is it like? Tell me what it's like. How do you do this whole like to lead your family to love God? I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this. I want to know more. But I mean, I wasn't shy, but that felt like a weird question. So I didn't, I didn't ever go up to men and ask this. But then when I got a little older and I started myself to prepare for ministry, I started asking uh, men in the church this question. And I'm going to be real with you. It was at times pretty disappointing, the answer that I got. And I know it's kind of a weird question, but I'd say like, t- again, like, what's it like to be a grown man who follows Jesus and lead your family to love God? And a lot of times I'd get like, a, I mean, I don't know, man. I just, like, I just, just go to church and stuff. That's good. I do know that. I see you there. So great start. But tell me about this end stuff. It was like, I I don't know. You're the one studying to be a minister. You tell me. And it's like, man, I get it. It's a strange thing to talk about maybe, but is that all you got? And they're like, what do you want me to say? I don't know. Tell me what it means to take up your cross. You. Tell me what it means for Jesus to be like an active commanding presence in your life. Tell me what it means to lead others closer to him because I don't think you can have Christ without the cross. So what does it mean in, in, in day-to-day life? It's, it's, um, it's not entirely obvious. And I think part of what makes it challenging to take this seriously is that it is intense. It's extreme. 
It kind of feels like Jesus is being extreme. Like, I don't want to be irreverent, but it kind of feels a little dramatic. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's go take on the, 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 the enemy or whatever. It's just big, take up your cross. And it's like, it's like a husband says to his wife, hey, babe, I just need you to remember I would die for you. She's like, that's great. Also, could you do the dishes? <laughs> Maybe pick the kids up from school tomorrow. You know, it just, it doesn't feel super practical. And I do think we can wrap our heads around this. I don't think this is a major obstacle for us. I don't think the main reason why it's hard to take Jesus seriously is his intensity. I think the issue is more his invisibility. He's not in the room, like not visibly, not physically. We cannot see him. If you look around, you could scan every single face, every single person, and you're not going to see Jesus. And, and if we can't see something, then it's, well, I mean, you guys know the sayings. We grew up with the same sayings. We'll throw a couple, up, a couple of them up on the screen. We'll see if you can fill in the blank. So I'll give it to you with a blank, and then you can fill it in the second time. You have to blank it to believe it, okay? You, it, fill, in it for me. fill this in for me. You have to see it to believe it. Yeah, we say this because, like, You can tell me it's legit or true or real, but if I don't see it, I don't know for me. But if I can see it right in front of my face, then then there it is. And we don't even trust the screens anymore because they can be manipulated. But if you see it, then you believe it. Here's another one. You can fill this one in first time through. Out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, what are we saying when we say that? We're saying, if if it's not in front of my eyes, I'm not thinking about it. I'm not paying attention to it. I'm not even saying this is a bad thing. We have to pay attention to the things that are in front of us. But I am saying that this natural human habit of focusing on what we can see can make it difficult to take this Jesus seriously because it's easy to ignore a Jesus who's not right up in our face. It's easy to pretend to follow a Jesus who isn't actually here to say in a way that we can hear with these ears, hey, why did you do that? Or... Did you forget what I taught you? Or why do you only talk to me on Sundays? Or why do you spend so much energy serving me, but you don't seem super interested in paying attention to what I said to you? Or why are you ignoring me? And maybe you're not ignoring him. I'm not trying to charge all up. I'm not. If I'm you, I'm like, I'm not ignoring him. I'm not saying you are. I'm, I'm really not trying to offend anybody, but I do want to ask the question, how do we know? Like, how do we know that I'm... Uh, Well, we all know that other people follow a Jesus of their own making, right? Like we all have seen people who say they're followers of Jesus, but the Jesus they're following doesn't look a whole lot like the real Jesus. Yes, we can say we are aware of this. Not if you're with me, yeah? So I uh, sometimes like to try to find prayers from other Christians in different times and places. And I find them at times to be a helpful guide to kind of kickstart some of my own prayers. And I came across this prayer a number of years ago I wanted to share with you. Here's, here's the prayer. It says, O God, our heavenly guide, we acknowledge you as our sovereign Lord. May we forever have the courage of our convictions that we may always stand for you and for our great nation. Build within us that wisdom kindred to honorable decisions and the godly work. By the power of your infinite spirit and energizing strength, bless us now in this assembly that we may honor you in all things. We pray in the name of Christ, our blessed Savior. Amen. Be careful amening that prayer because there's nothing wrong with the words. It's fine. It's a fairly beautiful prayer and I can say many of those things. You can too. The problem with the prayer is the prayer because the man who prayed this, you might not recognize his name, is Sam Bowers. And Sam Bowers was a grand master of the Ku Klux Klan 
who prayed this prayer at a meeting in June of 1964, after which he and his fellow Christ followers left the room with weapons in their hand and hatred in their heart to rid the land of commies and those with darker pigmentation. This man was not a real follower of Jesus, but he said he was. So how do we, how do we know? Uh, again, maybe less dramatically, I think about my favorite teacher growing up. And I'm not going to say his name because I don't in any way want to dishonor him because I really do deeply appreciate and respect him still to this day. He was my history teacher. And because he loved history, we loved history. You know how that can be. And he was hilarious, man. He'd wear Birkenstocks and socks and he was swearing all the time. And anyway, we just thought he was funny and he was a good teacher. And, but he was not a follower of Jesus. Like I knew enough about the man to know this man is not basing his life on who Jesus is. And I still remember this one day he was given a lesson and he was talking about different um, different religions around the world. And he, he said, you know, you have Muslims and you have Buddhists and then you have Christians. And he pointed to himself like this. And I'm like, whoa, like you seem to be describing yourself as a Christian. I love you, but I know you. And that is not a word that you should use to describe yourself because that's not who you are. Now, again, I get that these are the extremes. Like you're not Sam Bowers and you're probably not my beloved teacher, but I do wonder if some of that same Sickness, some of that same mentality can creep in a little bit. Let me share one more thing with you. I saw this from, from a pastor down in Dallas who I really appreciate. He, uh, he posted a couple of lists describing Jesus. I want to read this list to you of some descriptions of Jesus in modern language. And I, I want you to kind of think about what you think and feel as I walk through this. So here's the list. Jesus, dot, 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 fed the hungry. Jesus loved the poor. Jesus was a brown-skinned, Middle Eastern, undocumented immigrant. He was outraged at systemic injustice. He elevated women. He defied the patriarchy. He eschewed religious power dynamics, and he gave health care to those who couldn't afford it. Be like Jesus. Maybe you've seen something like that before. I wonder how that makes you feel, what that makes you think. Let me show you another one. Here's another list, similar. Jesus, dot, 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 fought for a traditional definition of marriage. Jesus opposed sex outside of heterosexual marriage. Jesus loved his country. He defied cultural elites. He chose 12 men to lead the church. He affirmed gender as defined by biology. He fought for the infallibility of the Bible. He said people who didn't believe in him didn't know God. He was part of a traditional family and his followers approved the righteousness of military service. Be like Jesus. <laughs> now, my point is not that either of these lists is perfect. They're not. And I'm also not saying they're equally legit. Honestly, I don't really care at the moment. Like maybe you're thinking, well, I'm smart enough to know that those are both somewhat true, but also somewhat problematic. Good for you. That's not the point. The point is like, which of the two, which of the two makes you lean in a little bit and say, yup. And which one are you like, well, actually, which one are you inclined to affirm? And which one are you inclined to criticize? or to second guess. And apart from whether or not you're right or whether you can think this through, I think you know what I'm getting at. Can we please together, I'm not just saying this rhetorically, can you and I please together acknowledge the possibility that we want a Jesus who fits what we want? Can we admit that this is not just an out there problem? Can we admit that there is at least a part of us some of the time that are, I'm not totally immune to squeezing Jesus into a mold, to putting him into a box and expecting him to behave? Can we raise an important question? How do you know you're following the real Jesus? <laughs> That's an important question. This is a really important question for those of you who are new to the faith or who are in here and you're thinking about, you know, giving your life to Jesus, following Jesus. It's a really important question for you. Like, how do you know the Jesus that you've just given your life to or that you're thinking about giving your life to is the real one? 
It's a good question. And it's an important question, maybe more important for those of you who have been at it for a while. Because being at it for a while can certainly set you up to follow him well, but it can also get in the way because you get into these routines and you forget to ask hard questions and you become vaccinated accidentally against the real Jesus so that when he shows up, your system is ready to reject him. Whoa, 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 whoa. How do you know if you're following the real Jesus? I mean, the good news is I I really think Mark 8 is specifically designed to answer that question. Now, I do want to back up a little bit because the whole thing hangs together and we do only have time to read through this once, so I want you to lean in and pay close attention. I want to start actually in 8.22, chapter 8, verse 22. I want to read you the story that happens before the text Tyler read. Make a few comments on the story because it really is connected and then walk through our text. So Mark chapter 8, verse 22, it says, they, that's Jesus and his disciples. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. Not a big deal for Jesus. He's been healing people already quite a bit. He has demonstrated the capability to heal blindness and other issues. And people know about this. So they bring this man to Jesus and beg Jesus to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and he led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up. The blind man looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. So note this. He's been touched by Jesus. He's been like healed, but he can't, he can see kind of. He can see a little bit. He can see people now. He's not blind, but they don't look like people. They look just like half people look like trees. And verse 25 says, once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. It's gotta be one of the strangest miracles in the life of Jesus. What's going on here? Uh, It's not a power failure. It's an object lesson. It's not a moment of weakness. It's Jesus doing something to show something, to make a point, because the blind man in the story is actually a picture of the disciples at this juncture in their journey with Jesus. They can see, kind of. They can see who Jesus is. They've been with him long enough to know who he is, but they don't yet know what that means. They don't yet know what that means for Jesus, and they don't yet know what that means for them. You know how I know? Keep reading. Look what happens next. It's totally connected. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They give some answers. Other people say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. And then Jesus homes in on them. What about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah, Christ. Same word, different language. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. It's the right answer. Jesus warned them, though, not to tell anyone about him. So they can see, kind of, But look what happens next. Jesus then began to teach them that the son of man, that's himself, to teach them that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus spoke plainly about this, and Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. That's pretty bold. But when Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God but merely human concerns. Do you see it? Peter and the other disciples are like the blind men in the middle of the story. They've been convinced that Jesus really is the Christ. He really is the Messiah. He really is the promised one, the savior king that God sent to fix the mess we've made of the world. The one he finally gave us to help us with the help we need. But they expected him, they expected Jesus to do this according to their own expectations. 
They wanted a Jesus who was going to be precisely what they wanted. They wanted a victorious king, not a failed revolutionary who died in execution on a Roman cross for a criminal. This is not what they signed up for, but they respond intensely. Peter's response is no joke, taking Jesus's. He just told him he's the Messiah and now he's gonna rebuke him. Why does he respond this way? Why does he so boldly resist? Well, let's keep reading, see if we can find out. Verse 34 says, then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels. Peter's problem with Jesus dying on a cross was not just that he was concerned for his friend Jesus. Maybe that was a part of it, but that doesn't seem to be the issue. Peter's problem is that Peter understands the unbreakable bond between master and follower, the link between Messiah and disciple. What happens to him gonna happen to us. If Jesus is headed for a throne, then I'm gonna get a throne too. A smaller one for sure, but a shiny one nonetheless. If Jesus came for glory, then some of that glory is gonna spill over onto me. If Jesus came to succeed, then success is where my story's going too. But if Jesus came for a cross, if Jesus came to lose, if Jesus came to die, and Peter is mad, not because he is confused, but because he finally gets it. He finally sees clearly. Like the blind man in the story, Peter here has received a second touch and now has his clear vision of Jesus. And he hates it because what he sees isn't the promise he expected God to keep. You know you've seen Jesus clearly when you understand he is calling you to die. There's no gain, there's no, there's no benefit, there's no virtue in, in singling out Peter. I think we probably are together on this. Peter is not just Peter. Peter is not unique. Peter's a mirror. He's a reflection. That's his role in the story, is to show us what we might not be able to see about ourselves. We have seen enough to see that Jesus is the one that we want to follow, but have we seen Jesus enough to know what that means? And Jesus makes sure that everybody there doesn't miss that everybody needs to hear this. And the gospel is presented in a way that we don't miss that everybody here needs to hear this. Verse 34, then he called the crowd together along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. You cannot have the Christ without the cross. Not just his cross, yours, your cross, Your throne made of two pieces of wood perfectly arranged for maximum pain. Your denial of self. Your falling in line behind another. Your death. This is the Messiah you were promised. This is the Savior you want. This is the King you need. And he's right here in the room. This isn't just theory or history. He's right here in the room. Invisible, sure. But so is the air currently keeping you alive. And so are the sound waves that are enabling you to hear the words that I'm saying. And so are the thoughts that are roving around in your mind as you try to figure out what, if anything, you need to do. He's here, 
right here in the room. Now he is gentle. He is the most gentle of all persons, but he is firm and he is serious and he is speaking to me and he is speaking to you and he is cutting through the layers of complexity that make up your days, your weeks, your life. He is penetrating the barriers and exposing your heart, taking you back to the first principles of your existence as a human being, saying, who are you in the end? And repeating to you the same words he spoke long ago, if you want to be my disciple, you gotta deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That's great, Jesus. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What is this supposed to look like? I don't want to be careful here. I want to be careful. I don't want to over-explain Jesus because I think it's, it's not so much what to do. It's whether you will do whatever he says to do. Like this is the question before the question. He's not trying to be particularly practical. He's trying to give you a vision of how this relationship is going to work. So I don't want to go further than he goes But if I could carefully try to make this as concretely as possible, I think what he's saying is, if you want to belong to me, if you want me to bring you lasting joy, if you're ready to receive my love and and walk in my wisdom, here's rule number one. Put simply, it's not about you. I don't think that he's talking about three different things. It's not like you deny yourself and you take up your cross and you follow me. I think he's talking about one thing in three different ways. To deny yourself is to take up your cross, is to follow him. To follow him is to take up your cross, is to take the focus off of you. I'm not him. You're not him. We're not in charge. It's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. This is the fundamental mindset of a disciple of Jesus. This is the mindset that we take with us wherever we go. This is the mindset you take to work. You walk through the doors of work and you remember, it's not about me. I'm not here to see how much money I can make or accolades I can achieve or attaboys or girls I can get or how I can rise up to status and gain myself more power or notoriety. No, it's not about you. It's about how you and your presence can serve and benefit other people in the building and the people that the building serves. You go to your neighborhood, it's the same mindset. It's not, what can my neighbors do to make my life easier? It's, what can I do for them? In your friendships, it's not, what can I get out of these people? It's, how can I provide love to them? If you're married in your marriage, it's not, what can he or she do to make me happy? It's, what can I do? How can I serve so that this person who I'm committed to under God can become more like Jesus and can experience holiness and joy and what it's like to be loved by a fellow imperfect person? If you have kids This is the mentality you take to your parenting. If you have parents, this is also the one you take to them. But if you have children, it's not what can they do to make me look good. It's how can I set them up up for success? How can I lay my life down to move their story forward? That's the call. And I need to stress, we don't do this because we like figured out how it all works. We don't do this because we can perfectly make sense of how my particular sacrifices are gonna bring about these particular benefits. It doesn't work that way. You don't wait till you've cracked the calculus to step into this because it's not a question of certainty because we can't see the end from the beginning. Frustrating as it may be, we are stuck in the middle and we always will be. This is a matter of faith, intelligent faith for sure, but faith nonetheless. And it is not about a principle. It is about a person. If you're gonna say yes to Jesus's call to discipleship, don't say yes because you think it sounds like a great idea. Say yes because of the one whose idea it is. We follow Jesus because Jesus is Jesus and Jesus is worthy, amen? Somebody say worthy. 
Jesus is worthy. I need to say this. Jesus is worthy of your total trust. He is. He is deserving of your complete obedience, of your total surrender, of your absolute commitment, of your unqualified allegiance. Jesus is worthy. My, my man, I'll tell you what's stressing me out today. If there's one thing I worry about today, it's that you separate the command from the commander. The command is real and it is sharp, but it doesn't make any sense if you separate it from the commander. If you take the call to take up your cross away from the one who went to his cross, then you're not gonna understand how this works. You got to keep the bigger picture in mind and remember that the one who calls you to surrender all is the only one capable of providing everything you need in this life and the next. So please remember, please remember, I beg you to remember what we've already seen in this gospel. Remember the healing one because the Jesus who says, take up your cross is the same Jesus who says, take up your mat and walk. Remember the powerful one because the one who calls you to die is the same one who calmed the storm. Remember the miraculous one because the Christ who says, follow me is the same Christ who fed the masses with a meager meal found in the lunchbox of a child. It's about him. And as we look ahead to the rest of this gospel, to the rest of this series, it's the same one who will love you to the end. The same one who will die in your place the same one who will willingly suffer and sacrifice his life so that you might know what it means to live. You see it in our text too. There's a promise. I know this text is is a sharp text, but there's a promise. He's coming back in glory, angels in tow. And this text does not mince words, and I don't want to either. The cost of discipleship is great. Deny self and die. (laughs) But the reward is greater. The cost of discipleship is real and it is hard. Deny self and die. But the cost of non-discipleship is unspeakably worse. Forfeit your soul? No thanks. So at the end of the day, it comes back to the same question. It always comes back to the same question. Who do you say Jesus is? Or to ask that same question from the other side, what will you do when you don't want to do? what Jesus wants you to do. Father God, we thank you for today. And we thank you for answering our prayer. God, I bet one of the things we most consistently ask for when we gather in this place is that we would be given a clear vision of Jesus, a clear vision of your son. And I wonder sometimes if you laugh a little bit when we ask that because we don't always know exactly what we're asking for. And you're giving that to us, so thank you. But help us, God, when we are given that clear vision, not to run or to rebuke, but to repent and to take our place at the feet of the one we follow. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.